But that's that mentoring experience. And that's what podcasts and that's what we hope our podcast become for people is an opportunity to to almost like a masterclass situation. Because uh, there are teachers out there who, who are rock starring, uh, who understand what it takes to do what we do. But nobody knows who they are. Nobody's heard their voice. No one's, no one's, you know, there's not a camera in every teacher's room capturing all these moments and, and putting them in a file. And you may have never experienced it, and then you may listen to it on a podcast, and then all of a sudden you experience it, and it's like, oh, I remember them saying, okay, this is how you, okay, got it. And even though it may be like, no, nah, I can't do that, but it gives me an idea. It sparks an idea in my mind of what I can do. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. My name is Kyle Krieger. Thanks for joining us uh, for this conversation with Dr. Saba Kidway. Um, who has been all over the place in, in education from being a classroom teacher to a technology specialist working with Apple. Now she is the creator of Designing Schools. Uh, and we brought her on the podcast to talk both about the Designing, designing Schools movement, but also about um, how we can all use design thinking in our classrooms. So we hope you enjoy this first part of the conversation where she introduces the concept of design thinking. And next week we'll have the second part where she talks about designing schools. So thank you for listening. Uh, go follow her um, at Ask Miss Q and also at Designing Schools on Instagram is the best place to find her. And you can find us at the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. So thank you again for listening. Welcome back everybody to the ABCs of Inspired Teaching. My name is Kyle Krieger. Um, my guy, Wilkie V. Law, is busy this morning, but I am really excited to have a conversation with our guest uh, today. I started following her on Instagram recently as I've been looking, I was explaining to her a little bit, that I've been looking for different opportunities in education and different spaces out there. Um, but I'm super excited to have Dr. Saba Kidway on the podcast all the way from Southern California. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. I mean, it's always nice to start your morning with a conversation like this. So thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, we were we were lucky. Um, be, being Midwest, uh, I was just explaining to you, I, I live in central time zone. So when we really do our podcast schedules right, we can do like a 7 a.m. Eastern time podcast with someone out there. And then I can like flip back and I can do like a 7 a.m. podcast with you because it's nine o'clock where I am. Um, but it's, it's fun. And like I said, I, I just started following you recently, started listening to your podcast a little bit because I, and I was explaining this to you, so I'll kind of go back over it. Um, I've been feeling like I'm reaching my ceiling as a classroom teacher, especially in social studies. And I've been looking for um, opportunities in education that are outside of the normal space. And that's where I came and found you and, and your work with designing schools. Um, and that particular thing, the first, so we'll, we'll kind of get into that, but I, I wanted to clarify that because you were just joking that we should have hit record as soon as we started talking um, about that particular. So we're going to get into all that, your background and design schools and everything. So for our listeners, could you give us just a little bit of your background and what it is that particularly you're doing in the education space now? 
Absolutely. And I think, you know what, like, I love that you just shared that because I'm going to contextualize like that, the answer, because I think so many of us are not only feeling that way now, but have felt that way for so long. And, you know, I, I would say like, you know, you're lucky you got to at least stay in education long enough to have hit that point. I experienced that my first year as a teacher. So, you know, we both teach social studies. I graduated in 2007 and, you know, kind of did all the right things that like, you know, everybody told me to do, go to school, get good grades, very cookie cutter kind of, you know, experience, I would say. But I ended up getting a job as a first year teacher when I graduated. And that was also the year of the recession. So it was also the year of a layoff notice. And it was just something that like nobody had ever really talked about or ever like prepared you for or like, hey, you know, your career may go in these different directions and whatnot. Like everybody always sells it in school as if, if you just check all the boxes when you graduate, there's just going to be this like great like stability and like a perfect career on the other side. And so that concept of being comfortable with ambiguity from a career perspective perspective was just so new for me that in that first year and in the, I would say the following four years um, at the beginning of my career, there was so much instability that that question you're asking now was one I had to ask as a new graduate. And so the book that I found to be the most transformative that I think would be for anybody now as well was Lynchpin by Seth Godin. Because in in Lynchpin, he really talked about something that I had never heard in school before. And that was that idea that like, you know, you can't just show up to your job and expect to just do like the main things. Like you have to find a way to go above and beyond. But I think above and beyond is so twisted sometimes. Like that doesn't mean just like work harder and like, you know, exhaust yourself. It means what are your strengths? What is your unique gift that you bring to the table? And how then do you articulate that? And I think today in the world of like, you know, social media and all those things, if you can make a connection between those two, you're better positioned to then meet people who are going to be more aligned with your interests. And you're also going to, I think, through that, be introduced to opportunities. And so that's kind of what happened to me very organically. It wasn't strategic by any means. But now looking back, those for somebody who did want to implement a strategy, those are the two pieces I would put together. And so being able to do that, what, like about five years into my career, then really helped me realize my strength was to exactly to the point that we were talking about earlier in social studies, you kind of fall into two categories, you know, there's the ones where like, it's all content. And then there's the AP classes, which kind of do emphasize a little bit more of the reading writing. And I thought that that was just so unfair, like by not integrating that into mainstream curriculum, you are completely putting those students at a disadvantage if you are not teaching them in history and social studies how to write historically, how to think historically and do those things. And so I realized that intersection of history and literacy was a strength of mine and technology really amplified our ability to do that with students because sure, they may not have had the strongest writing skill set maybe, but could they speak? Could they voice their ideas? Did they have thoughts in their head? Absolutely. And so when I got iPads, it was a game changer because students writing didn't always have to be step one. We could articulate our ideas in so many different ways. We could work with information in so many different ways. And then we could translate that into the writing part. And so it really gave me the opportunity to kind of scaffold their skills. And so that sort of led me down, you know, to that the arena, I guess, of like technology. I did a lot of work with K-12 schools. I did a little bit of work with higher education. And then I ended up working with Apple. And then I left there 
um, what, about three months ago now um, to start designing schools because over the last three years in particular, my focus has been returning to school as a learner. You know, I sort of like spent a decade talking about what change should look like with technology. I was really curious, what is it like to be a student again? Um, and I wanted to add a research lens to some of the work I was doing with design thinking. So it was like a two-in-one type opportunity. So I graduated in 2020, and now um, a lot of my time is spent really working with that research and design thinking and helping schools um, explore what it could do for them. Mm, you know, and I, I was listening to you, we have to be almost the, the same age. So you got to be like, if you graduate college in 07, you got to be like late thirties, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One year so, away from 40. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm about, I'll be 38 this year, but I was, you know, telling you about how I grew up in Wisconsin, but ended up in Houston. I graduated college 08. So when I graduated college 08, there were no jobs. The first, the first place that offered me a job was Houston. And, and that's what got me out of that particular or out of my particular comfort zone. And I'm really interested with what you're saying, you know, as like, I guess the place to, to kind of start on this is as you know, would you consider yourself kind of like an early adopter of like the iPad and the technology? Because I feel like where I was in Houston, you know, I started in Houston in 09. And it wasn't until way farther into my career there that they were starting to really embrace the technology. So when you started with the iPads and doing that particular stuff, you don't feel like you were an early adopter, you were kind of just following the curve. Yeah, no, I was not an early adopter by any means in my professional life. So personally, um, I, I, looking back now, I feel like I was so lucky to have a dad who was so into technology. Like, you know, today, how people are always like recording with their phones and whatnot. He was like always carrying a video camera, like on his shoulder, like recording everything. Like our whole lives are documented, like all of our sibling fights. I mean, you name it. He was just like in the background recording everything. So I feel like growing up, like we had exposure to computers and exposure to technology, but I had only ever really seen it in a personal context. Um, we used to do like, you know, let's, you know, the computer lab and whatnot. And we used to do like the one project a semester and things like that. But so much, even though I had a project-based approach, everything was um, pen and paper. And one of the, it wasn't until 2011, I made the switch from public to private because I just literally could find no stability. And it just so happened to be that that was the year the school wanted to experiment with technology. They wanted to go one-to-one. -one, they just didn't know how or with what device. And so being the new person, and I knew technology was a skill set of mine, I was like, oh, like, yeah, I'll pilot iPads, sure. But when iPads first came out, I was by no means that person that was like, oh my God, or people that were using iPods and were like, this is going to change the way we teach. I, I was not an early adopter by any means. I was the last of my friends to get a smartphone. I didn't join um, Twitter until 2013. I didn't join Instagram until 2017. So like I by no means was an early adopter early in my career, but now I feel like I have the comfort to be able to, like I have a criteria now for how to adopt new technology that I didn't feel like I had before. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. And I don't know what was making me think about it last night as we were talking. I was like, I just want to yell at my kids sometimes when they're using technology. I'm like, when I was in school, I had the, there were like four different encyclopedias that started with the letter S like, 
you had to, if you were doing like real research for a project, like in the library, you had to get like several books and like piece it together. And you had, you had to do those things. And, and I think technology has, has obviously expanded. So over the course of say, you know, the last 11 years that you've, you've been using technology in the classroom or with students and teachers, how have you seen it change? Because there was kind of a narrative out there that like, you know, 2011 to 15, everybody was adopting technology. And now there's some schools that are going back away from technology. So over that 10 year period, how have you seen the adoption of technology happen? And, and is it still happening? Is it decreasing? I guess I'm interested from your research-based perspective. Yeah, I mean, I would say, especially given the pandemic, I don't think it's decreasing, right? I think if anything, in the last like two years in particular, we've seen more people adopt technology, go one-to-one more than like, you know, any other time period, I imagine. What I would say is I always reference back to the research that Paul Atwell did. And, you know, um, and it's so crazy because this is back from like 2001. I think he wrote this particular paper where he says, we don't have a digital divide. We have a digital use divide. And I think that's one that's still very, very much present. And what he said, is it's not about putting a device in the hands of every single kid. It's about, are you teaching them the problem-solving skills, the creativity skills, the collaboration and presentation skills so that they can actually leverage the technology to do the things that are going to open the doors to those opportunities. If you're just putting it in there, like, you know, I mean, I think back on some of my work, like we were doing like in 2010, 2011, I mean, just over the last decade, we still do workshops on how to use iMovie or like, you know, the app has changed. So now it's like how to use clips or how to use this app. Like so much of our approach is driven through the use. Like we start with tech, I think too much. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I feel like technology gives you platforms and opportunities and access in ways that we've never had before. But I think most people don't know how to leverage that. Most people don't know how to take their traditional assignments and tweak them to showcase how the skills they're getting, what how this translates into what it is that they're hoping to do, whether it's a job, whether it's starting a business, whether it's a scholarship and leverage technology to be able to position yourself and articulate yourself and showcase those skills and strengths. And so that to me is where I think we still have a huge missing gap. And I think it's also an equity piece. Um, You know, one of the quotes that I always go back to is um, William Gibson. He says, the future is here. It just isn't evenly distributed. And I think too many times when we talk about technology and what it brings, we're talking about it as if it's something that kids are going to need. But the truth is that there are a lot of people that do get access to these types of experiences. And then there are a lot of people that don't. And that to me is the difference. I think everybody has to some degree, especially now, the technology that they need. And if they don't, there's a way for them to be able to integrate it somehow or find a way to be able to bring it into their environment. But I think what we're all really missing is what are you actually opening the door to that's new that you weren't able to open the door to before for kids. Um, That to me is that missing piece. And that's why I really enjoy the design thinking work, because I think the design thinking work gives you the power to create that opportunity for yourself, even if nobody's giving it to you. Yeah. I remember, you know, spring of 20, when it was starting to come down that we were going to go virtual and I, and me and my buddy Wilkie, we were like, we got this, like, we know, and we know the internet, we know these apps 
And every kid's on their device. They know exactly what to do. And unfortunately, my assumption was totally wrong in the fact that, you know, they call these kids digital natives. They have lived with this technology. Digital native does not mean the same thing as digital learner. Digital learner. We, we learn that the hard way. And what struck me in what you just said is how much during the pandemic we've tried to use technology to make class look the exact same as it always is. And, and I wonder your perspective on that, on how schools have operated over the last couple of years, because one of the biggest frustrations I've had over the last couple of years is we were never consulted as to how do you think virtual learning should look? It was just, let's make it look exactly as close to normal school as possible. So what have you seen kind of on that front, especially during the pandemic about people using technology to try to do the exact same things we've always done? I mean, I think the pandemic is a hard example to leverage because I feel like we were struggling with so many other things alongside that, that I think, you know, whatever you were able to do during the time, like, you know, was probably more than your best. So I don't know that that would be like the fairest example to use. What I would say is what could we do now? Right. And I think one of the things that I actually just interviewed um, Nima Avashia um, last week on the podcast. And one of the things that I really liked about Nima was she she shares the story of how, you know, she kind of was navigating spring, got to summer, and it was like, okay, whoa, like this is not going away. This is going to be here. We're doing this again. I can't do this alone. I've got to ask my kids. I've got to bring my kids into this because I've got to figure out what's working, what's not working. This is like new territory for all of us. There's not a lot of research out there to support this. Like, this is how you navigate it. This is what you do. And she did these empathy interviews with her students. And I thought that that was just so beautiful. And that to me is, you know, the one thing I wrote an article with um, Devin Vidichka and Kristen Gagnier, and it's all about um, relationship building. And it was so interesting, you know, if you look at what students are asking for, they're asking for a feeling of being connected. They're asking for deeper relationships. They're asking for motivation. They're asking for all of those human things that I think, you know, as teachers, we, we want to do, we, we are gifted at naturally and bringing and creating in terms of that culture and environment. Yet I think there's just so much pressure to be focusing on so many other areas. And so that was the one thing I would say, like, you know, it's like, forget what happened, like, you know, or obviously not forget what happened. But instead of looking back, if you look forward, what's that one thing you can do? I think it's designing with people. To your point, teachers weren't consulted. Students weren't consulted. And I think this concept of designing for not including other voices is just, it, it's so void of empathy that there's no way you're going to have a solution in which people feel fulfilled, in which people feel motivated intrinsically to want to be part of your solution and to overcome these barriers and these challenges. Um, 
And so that's, to me, that's what I would say. I would say, start with that empathy piece. Ask your students what's working, what's not working. Ask your teachers what's working, what's not working. And not just ask for the sake of asking, but really look at using the design thinking process to go through and say, okay, what is that one challenge that is unanimous amongst everybody and how can we solve for it? And I think when you break it down one by one by one, you begin creating a culture where people feel seen and people feel heard. And I think that that's the foundation of relationship building, right? And so that to me is where I would say like start because I have found that to give bring people. I actually just did a workshop yesterday and somebody messaged me and they said, you know what? You know, we we might not have become masters at design thinking, but I have never felt so seen and heard. And I, I can't tell you how much that means to me. And so I think like just opening the door to those conversations is life-changing right now for so many people, adults and kids. You know, and what you said there about feeling seen and heard is just such how, you know, I mean, it, it strikes to the heart of how I know I felt over the last couple of years, because we did have some of those times where we were asked, quote unquote, we were asked for our opinion and our suggestions, but then nowhere in the things that happened were, were any of our opinions really taken. And granted, I, I'm not, I was never in those high level meetings where they decided all these particular things, but that's a frustration, I think. And, and I'm a lot of teachers I talk to around the country, we talk to are feeling that same way, like they don't feel seen and heard. And I know, I know what, I know how hard it is when I don't particularly, particularly feel seen or heard to make my students feel seen or heard. And I, and I think that's a challenge. So before we get too much farther, can you just kind of take our listeners like through the steps or, you know, define design thinking and then, you know, kind of the steps that you would take, because I think also, you know, what you just said is we have such a hard time zeroing in on what the biggest challenge is, even just in that space of being able to get some kind of cohesion on what our issues are and how to solve them, I think would really help. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I'm glad you asked that because we don't want to leave people hanging, right? Like, yeah, go do these empathy interviews and ask these questions because then it's like, then what? And I think that's the one thing that I like about design thinking. And, you know, one of the things I really encourage people to do is to really break out of that hexagon mentality. Design thinking is not just about jumping through those five hexagons of empathy, define, ideate, prototype, and test. Yes, that is the foundation of what the process is aiming to guide you through, but how you go through each of those areas doesn't always have to be one to five all in one you know, step. It doesn't always have to be um, done all at once either. And so one of the examples I give is let's just say, you know, we're doing these empathy interviews, right? Let's say you've got a principal who is bringing their teachers together. They're doing that survey that you just referenced. And now you've got all of these different things. You want to be asking people a couple of things and always balancing it within that empathy phase. The first one is how, what, 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 what challenges are you experiencing? but also what's bringing you joy, right? What are the things that you're fearful of, but what are also the things you're motivated by? And I think too often when we talk about challenges or we talk about empathy and we talk about design thinking, 
the focus is always like, well, tell me all your problems. And that's great. Absolutely. But we want to balance that and also learn about people. What are they motivated by? Because it is only when we have those two ends of the spectrum that we can begin kind of crafting a shared narrative. So that's sort of that first phase is that empathy phase. Then from that empathy phase, you really want to be able to pull out something to prioritize, right? Because there's so many different things, especially right now, more than ever before, there's so many different pieces that we are, that are challenging. We have to be able to prioritize which ones we want to address first and then kind of go from there. And once you've kind of addressed or you've prioritized the challenge you want to solve for, you want to then go ahead and create that problem statement, right? Those like, how might we's. Um, so for example, like if, um, if collaboration is a challenge, right? Like, I wish I didn't have to work alone. How might we create the time and space for ninth grade social studies teachers to come together to plan instruction, right? It's when you open the door to, when you change a challenge into a how might we, there is that sense of optimism. There's an opportunity here to do something. And then from there, you can kind of, you know, ideate, okay, what are some different things we can do? And then, you know, obviously you go out, you test an idea. But what I really want to share with people is as you're going through those phases, what makes it so challenging usually for people is they don't have the structure or the frameworks for having that conversation. Because telling somebody simply to define a problem, prioritize a problem, ideate, it's too vague. And I think that's one of the reasons why people struggle with the design thinking process as it's presented through those five hexagons. So there are two resources that I love to share with people as they're going through this, actually three. Um, the first one is um, a tool called Liberating Structures. And liberating structures are like, you know, I feel like in education, we know like the visible thinking routines from like Harvard's Project Zero, like the think, pair, share, um, see, wonder, you know, I used to think now I think liberating structures are those, but I think they're designed a little bit more for like organizational conversations, you could totally use them for teaching too. But those to me are really great ones like, okay, I need my group to ideate, I want us to brainstorm going through those gives inspiration for how to structure those conversations because they can very easily get out of hand and go all over the place, um, get completely off track. And I think that's what scares most people from opening that door. But if you have a structure and structure really creates freedom, structure isn't designed to control the conversation. Structure is designed to facilitate a dialogue that allows us to move from idea to action. It's not about making sure that people aren't going to say things you don't want to hear and whatnot, but you can only have conversations around topics that are complex. These topics are also emotional. And to be able to navigate those, you have to one scaffold that conversation, especially if it's something you've never done. You're going to get so much all at once. It, it, it's overwhelming for the person facilitating. Um, so I feel like those liberating structures are really helpful. Another tool that I find really helpful is Session Lab. Session Lab, again, has a really extensive library of different tools you can use to facilitate these conversations um, and then gives you the ability to design an agenda as well. And last but not least is Mural. You need a space, a home for these conversations to be visualized so that they're agile, like you can move them around. And I think, you know, in person, we used to do like whiteboards and post-its. I like Mural. Mural is a digital whiteboard, but it has great templates and it just is a great home for housing these conversations in a way that's visual. And again, giving you the tools to move ideas to action. So hopefully that answered your question. Oh, you know, and and it 
you just like hit on so many of the things like that I feel like I'm currently going through and really one of the biggest challenges like I'm very much a visual learner visual like when I am like trying to come up with ideas like I don't make lists like I will go down to my whiteboard and I just start doodling things all over everywhere and somehow in my mind it makes sense to me like I can connect I can connect the dots but I forget that my kids especially can't can't connect the dots in the same way that that I can and that what you spoke about about things being vague I feel like that's something that I do a ton and I wonder why like my kids are not getting to the particular um to the particular point of like this is where I want you to go with this conversation because I don't give them enough structure and and I think for me that that is probably my biggest challenge is creating that particular that particular structure because I'm such an un well I should be more structured I I I have to say that like I definitely should be a more structured person but um in your work though how how have you used that phrase of how might we especially with kids I mean because you know I live in the Twin Cities and the Twin Cities, for the better part of two years, has been kind of the epicenter of the country because we had the, you know, the incident, the the murder of George Floyd was like five miles from my school. So in in having to especially like have these conversations and 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 talk about these different topics, I think we've we've struggled. So do you use that how might we phrase with kids and if so like how how would you particularly use it yeah and and i would so i would start by saying i think whether you're the adult or whether you're the child um trying to i think start with a conversation that is going to be more filled with emotion it's it's a harder place to start to ha- unpack a new topic that maybe you haven't fully thought through, but also to learn a new process and to learn a new way of thinking and to learn all these new steps. It's a lot to put, I think, on somebody all at once. And so I'm a really, really, really big believer in like scaffolding things out. Like what what is that point of entry that has no pressure? And so, for example, like when we used to do it with students, um, one of the points of entry we used to use was just like designing your study routine. Like, you know, like a lot of times kids come in, like to your point earlier, most kids are not self-directed learners just because they haven't, that's not an opportunity we always put on the table, right? It's more like, okay, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. And that's just how it goes. And so one of the things we used to do um, is we used to start by asking kids, like, if you had to design the ideal study routine for your partner, what might that look like? And so they go through that empathy phase and like, you know, they're doing like, they're just learning the basics of design thinking, um, not just the skills, right? Because I know we talked about the five steps and those are the sort of like the steps you go through. But one of the things that design thinking gives you is the mindset so that organically over time, it becomes a natural way of how you think. When you see a challenge or you see an opportunity, you automatically start thinking, how might we? Because you have one of the mindsets that I like the most, creative confidence. You believe that if you see a problem or you see an opportunity, that you can do something about it. 
you might not have the answers for how, but you believe that you can. And I think that's the first step there. The other design thinking mindset, comfort with ambiguity. We don't know how this is going to turn out. We don't know what this is going to be like, but we have the structures for having the conversations about how. So to go back to that example of students, we ask them, you know, design a routine for your partner. Ask them, what was school like for them? When did they do well in school? When did they do well on an exam? When's the time they felt happy? When's the time they felt all the opposite things, right? They hated school. They didn't do well and whatnot. How do they like to learn outside of school? What are some of the ways in which they learn? And they then take the tools that they um, have access to. And then they just say like, oh, hey, like, you know, this is a really visual person. I think, you know, you would really benefit if you did X, Y, Z. It's a fun activity, low point of entry, no pressure and whatnot. Then from there, we might scaffold it into like something a little bit more formal. And then there we slowly elevate it. But what we really want to do early on is give kids an understanding of the design thinking language, the design thinking framework, so that when we do want to use it in these instances, and we are having these conversations, students understand what empathy means. They know how to have those conversations. They know that when I'm asking somebody a question, I'm not going to respond with like an, oh yeah, and me too, and this and that they're listening and that active listening. And so, which, you know, active listening is one of those world economic forum trending skills. And so I think just really helping people learn those phases, they challenge the traditional way in which we think, in which we learn, in which we speak so much that I think once you're above like seven, eight years old, you've just been programmed a certain way and you have to kind of unlearn some things before you can relearn new things. And that's kind of the age that we've seen it at. Like, I think it's like, what do people say? Like third grade is when kids kind of really get like, okay, this is school. This is how I'm supposed to act. This is how I'm supposed to be. So if all of a sudden now in high school, you want to try to flip that script, it, it, it can be a disaster sometimes because not because they're rude or kids or whatever, because it's so uncomfortable that you don't know what to do with that feeling. And so you've got to address that in a non-threatening way through just like an easy experience, a fun experience before getting into those really heavy topics. What's good, fam? Thanks for checking out this episode of the ABCs of Inspired Teaching with Dr. Saba Kidway. Um, and listen next week to hear the second part where she discusses um, what designing schools look like and how we can apply those rules and those thoughts into our schools and into the situations that we're facing. So again, we really appreciate you listening and tuning in. Have a great week and we'll see you next week.